Welcome to Terror Tracks, hosted by best-selling horror author Jack Pierce. Learn insider tips on how to write best-selling horror novels. Hear terrifying tales written by Jack and other great horror authors from around the world. And have your questions answered by the man himself. Here's your host, Jack Pierce. Don't be scared of monsters. Just look for them. Look to your left, to your right, under your bed, behind your dresser, or even in the closet. But never look up. She hates being seen. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free copy of Condemned when you sign up for a free trial with my link. Go to terrortracks.com shop to check out this deal and many more. In today's episode, I want to talk about anxiety when it comes to writing. The reason I want to talk about this particular topic this early is because many people will say things like, I've always wanted to write a book, but, and then some excuse comes. Most of these excuses come from anxiety, which is understandable. Many people will think that their book will not be any good, or that nobody will want to read it, or that it'll just be embarrassing or too hard or whatever. You know, there's so many anxieties to go into writing a book that it can stop a lot of people from starting. And I'm here to tell you, the last thing that should be on your mind is the audience when you're writing your book. Stephen King said it the best when he said that you should write with the door closed, but edit with it open. You should start by writing the story for yourself. And if you're not enjoying the story, then maybe it's time to try another story or maybe go back and figure out why you don't like your story. I've had many stories that started and got about 20 pages in and then I quit because I just couldn't continue for whatever reason. But you shouldn't let that hold you back or feel like that's something that you should feel nervous about. And you're not a failure if that happens because while I've put out 10 books thus far, I've had probably more than 10 that never made it to market or passed even the first draft. It is okay to have multiple projects. It's okay to not finish a product. It is okay to experiment with different things. Because that's the entire point. My ex, who was around for most of the publishing cycles for all the books, said to me once, If you want to make money, sell someone else's book. And that's true. While I am a best-selling author, a lot of my money went right back into the publishing. Basically the advertising and other things that it cost you to be an author. Having a website, having to pay artists, having to pay other employees, having to deal with all the time and headache that you do just to get any copies out there. Because that's a fact of life that really your job as an author is not going to be writing the best book. It's going to be all of the trouble that comes with marketing said book so anyone can see it. I'm not saying that nobody's ever going to read your book. But I feel like that's a good mindset to come into the writing process with. That no one's ever going to see this, so you end up writing it for yourself instead. There's a story that you want to tell that's never been told before, or one that has been told before, that would be better with your unique voice. And that story is raging inside of you and you have to get it out. Because here's the thing, no matter what field you're going into, in a creative sense. 
your success is largely going to be based on luck. You have just as good of a chance of becoming the next YouTuber with a million subscribers as you do becoming a mega bestseller like Stephen King or some of these other writers where you see them holding these big conventions and book tours and stuff like that, making millions of dollars off of their books. It's about the same chance. I am a best-selling author. All of my books, except for Bring Me a Dream, have gone to number one at least once. But that doesn't mean I'm rich, and that doesn't mean that the books are like a constant seller, or that it even is a day job for me, because it's not. There's not enough money in it. Because almost every penny that I get from the sales go right back into the advertising to get more sales. And that's just how it is when you're first starting out. And that's a harsh reality you're going to have to come with is that you can build it, but they will not come. So instead of getting upset and going out there trying to think that I have to write the perfect novel because a million people are going to run to buy it tomorrow, that is the wrong mindset, at least for the first draft. You should probably think that way when you get into the editing stages to polish this book as much as possible just in case that happens. But you should never set yourself up for failure by hoping for something so crazy. I'm not saying it won't happen, and I hope it does happen for you. But I want you to set your goal in mind a lot lower. That way, when you've done all this hard work, you have a little goal in mind that you can work towards, and then you can work your way up to being that million copy seller, or whatever you want to do with it after. When I wrote my first book, Under a Morning Star, I told my editor that if this book sells 10 copies, I will be happy. Since then, it has sold about 10,000 copies, maybe more. But even within the pre-order stage, I think I sold 14 copies on day one. And I thought it was kind of funny because I went to my editor and I said, well, I'm happy. And I was. And then it became an audiobook, which did quite well. I don't want you to have anxiety about sales or about critic reviews or anything else. I want you to write your book because it makes you happy. If you want money, get a job. Because I will tell you as someone who has failed at literally everything else besides being an author, that when you go into a creative career trying to make the big bucks off of it, it will make you miserable. The numbers will drive you crazy. You will end up like I have been many times in the past where I would constantly check my numbers every day seeing if there was progress. Most of the time, there wasn't. And that's fine. And I want you to understand that it's fine to not have even a single sale every day, every week, every month. You wrote something. You created it. This is your baby. You want it to succeed, of course. But you can't think of yourself as a failure if it doesn't explode and become the next Harry Potter. Because there are millions of books that are not Harry Potter. Even J.K. Rowling has other books that are not Harry Potter that didn't go anywhere. I mean, it's true. If you look up her list of books, a lot of them really are nowhere near Harry Potter level and never will be. She's worth a lot of money, but a name can only take you so far. So when you're writing your first draft or editing, I want you to think of it as you're writing the best story you can for yourself. 
when you're editing it, you should be making it the best you can in case anyone ever reads it. I don't want you to think of it as you have to do it perfect or write the perfect story or nobody will like your book because that's not true. Every book has errors and the best system for writing is done is better than perfect. If you did the best you could, then that's all you can do is what my dad always told me growing up because I would get so stressed about being perfect or being the best at something all my life and still am. When it comes to worrying about the audience though, Stephen King also said, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact quote, he said that he stopped worrying about what the audience liked a long time ago because if you try to please everyone, then everyone will hate the book, which is true. I had a string of three books, one being The Ghost Rider Murders, which did okay, Dead Meat, which was probably my most critically panned of all of them and condemned which you have heard on this podcast it did great probably in my top three best selling the ghostwriter murders did okay because i was trying to write to market which means i was trying to write what i thought the market wanted and it did okay and i tried to do the same with harvest the children but i went a little too far and the market hated it which is fine I still think it was a pretty decent book. And then Condemned, which did the best out of the three, was one that I thought was a throwaway. It was one that was really just an exercise to me. It was, I wanted to write a book or a story that took place in one room with four characters. And that's it. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to challenge myself to write a full story that wasn't this big, grandiose you know, thing that was at least 120, 140 pages and just try to write something that was as detailed as that, but in one room. And of course I did take some inspiration from Saw because I love the first movie. I think it's great. I think that's a masterpiece of horror is the ability to take a story that takes place in one room for the most part and have that much of a sort of grandiose plot to it with so many layers but i thought the condemned wouldn't push a single copy and i felt the exact same way about the suicide diaries which really was originally a 70 page rant about how much i hated my step family that particular day those two books that i thought were never going to go anywhere that i thought were my weakest and worst books by far were my best selling books right next to my very first, which was Under a Morning Star. You can't predict what the audience is going to like. You can't predict how well a book is going to do, no matter what you do. You should take the anxiety of, will the audience like it? Will it sell any copies? Will it get good reviews? Will it do anything successfully once it's released? And just take that and throw it out, because you cannot predict it. You have a better chance of predicting the winning lottery numbers than trying to understand what an audience is going to want. I feel like being an author is much different than being a YouTuber or other sort of public figure because with authors, I feel like it's a more isolated sort of activity. I personally don't have a group of readers that sort of follow me around and talk to me about the books or give me feedback in real time about the books because the books take months to make to release to have them marketed so it's really nearly impossible to get that feedback that you need 
on your books versus a YouTube video where people can just instantly comment while they're listening or on social media where they can see you said something and then reply to you. But with books, there's really no instant feedback loop except for reviews. And most people are too lazy to leave them anyway. So one thing I really want to drill into you over the course of this show is take reviews with a grain of salt and take the number of reviews and just ignore them. Because I've seen so many books that have like a thousand reviews and none of them say verified purchase. And basically what it was was someone's fan base from YouTube going and reviewing it without reading the thing. Or maybe they paid somebody, which is against Amazon Terms of Service. So I wouldn't really look at review count or really even the substance of said reviews because you just don't know if the person even read it or maybe they just didn't like that book. I mean, every book has bad reviews. Every single book. The Bible, the Koran, every Stephen King novel has probably thousands of one-star reviews for one reason or another. Every book has bad reviews. All of them. Yours will too. And you shouldn't be scared of those. You should be happy that you had someone so emotionally invested in your product, whether it's positive or negative, that they felt the need to go to your page and seek it out to say their opinion, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral. Because that's really hard to come by. I mean, it's hard enough to get most people to click on a link that you send them. People are just lazy, and that's fine. I mean, I am too. And Amazon has a nasty habit of deleting reviews with no cause, reason, or even telling you that it happened. Under a Morning Star had around 50 to 60 reviews at one point, and all of a sudden it just dropped down to like 20, and then a week later it dropped down to 16 or whatever it is now. They just got rid of the reviews for some reason and it happened on the other books and i've seen reviews come and go and also a lot of reviews that are international won't show up on the u.s page for some reason so the point is don't look at reviews as some be all end all of quality or sales amount or anything like that because it's just not true with that all said it's time for the next chapter of condemned i will see you in a moment Six hours left. So what do you think he wants? I stared at the floor and shook my head, looking at the cold, dead concrete. A small drain sat in the middle of the floor, going along in a straight line from the door to the end of the room. I stared at it for what felt like forever. I wondered why it was here. What was its purpose? What are you looking at, William? That grate. Where do you think it leads? I don't know. My best guess is the sewer? Maybe. But what would you need a grate for here? There are no sinks, showers, nothing that would need it. Blood. I heard someone whisper. What? I asked, looking around. Who said that? Everyone looked at me and shook their heads. Who's that? Is someone there? No answer. Come on, answer us. No answer. Well, we know someone is behind this. They're listening to us, that's for sure. Maybe that's a clue. Daniel snickered again. That's one useful clue, huh? 
What is your problem, man? Don't you understand where you are? I know where I am. I belong here. So do all of you, Daniel said. Did you put us here? No, but I have a feeling I know why we're all here. Well, what's the answer? It's all a big fat government conspiracy. My opponent wants me dead so he can win. That's the true answer. All of us gave him a blank stare in utter disbelief. How could one man be so self-centered and stupid that he would think it was all about him? It was almost psychotic, in a way. To think his opponent would round up three other people just to kill him. It would have been a lot easier to find him in a parking lot and off him. Or get Vito to do it for him. Wait a minute. He might be onto something, I said. Everyone started looking at me funny, and before anyone could speak, I held up my hand. Vito, have you ever done a hit? I asked. You think I'm going to dignify that with an answer? No, seriously. Have you ever, you know, whacked someone? I've had people taken care of. What about politicians? If I whacked politicians, you'd think I would let this prick here live? I would have sawed his head off by now. But you can't right now. What's your point? Maybe you killed someone who ran against Daniel. Daniel scoffed. I've never ordered a hit. I win in the polls with my signature charm, Daniel said with a grin. That doesn't matter. Vito, have you ever killed someone in politics or a detective or anyone in the government, period? I'm not answering that. You have to. It may get us out of here. All right. Let's say I did, which I didn't. The brick had it coming to him. Maybe I should hire you after all, Daniel said under his breath. I gave Daniel a sideways glance and focused back on Vito. Okay, so let's just say, for the sake of argument, Vito killed someone, that person was tied to Daniel, then that leaves me and Veronica. Let's see. Veronica, did your husband have any dealings in politics? City council, mostly. He did some dealings with the city manager to get permits done and such. Nothing over the top, as far as I know. That guy, Silverstein. Did those two ever go at it much? I'm sure they had some bad blood. Yeah, those two would argue constantly. Joey would come home in such a fuss over Silverstein calling him a slimy prick or an ethnic slur. I told him to ignore it. There was no reasoning with that horrible man. What ethnicity was he? Veronica hesitated for a moment and sighed. Does it matter? It might. What was he? A Jew? Heavens no. He was Japanese. How stereotypical of you to think that. It was worth a shot at least. What town are you from again, Daniel? I'm originally from here. But I am a mayor of Silver Springs, a little town in rural New York, Daniel said. Veronica, did Joey have any properties in Silver Springs? Probably. He liked to buy land and property in small towns and rent them out to the locals. It was a cheap and secure way to get a nice portfolio, and if things went belly up, he didn't lose too much. Oh my. This is all very interesting. And let's just say you're right, officer, and that the three of us have some underlying connection we've overlooked or missed. Where does that leave you in all this? How are you connected? I'm not sure, to be frank. I've never met or seen any of you before. Never heard of you or any police reports or witness statements. 
What about your partner? Back when I was a rookie, sure. But my old partner has been dead for several years now. Ryan. You stubborn prick. You had lung cancer and still kept smoking. I suppose you knew retirement was out of reach. It had been cancer or a bullet. In your case, both. I wonder how you'd go about solving this if you were here in this mess with me. Probably lecture me about how it's so obvious and then tell me to give you a smoke. Hey, just wondering, are we going to get shocked again? Veronica asked. Well, considering it happened once, probably, I said. I don't think I can take another shock. This is ridiculous. Hey, you crazy f do you have any idea who I am? I'm a goddamn mayor. Let me out now, you! Daniel yelled at the top of his lungs. No answer. I doubt he was expecting one anyway. I sighed and ran my hand down my face, feeling the heat from the room grow higher and higher. I wasn't sure if I was sweating from the stress or if the room was boiling us alive. Anyone else getting hot in here? I asked. Yeah, I thought I was the only one. It has been getting muggy in here. The heat rose from the vents above. It started to feel like we were inside an oven. Maybe Daniel the guy off and he wanted to broil us alive now. The sweat fell like rain off my forehead and my chest was soaking wet. I felt like I had just gotten out of the pool on a hot summer day. The rest weren't faring much better. Vito held a hand to his chest and his breathing became heavy. I looked over at him, praying in my mind that he didn't fall over dead. We needed answers, and without him we were screwed. We're gonna die in here, aren't we? No. I promise. We aren't going to die here. I won't let that happen. I said. What are you going to do? We have five hours to figure this out. I know we will get there somehow. We have to. Welcome back, everyone. This week, I would like to introduce a new segment where I talk about various horror movies, TV shows, books, comics that you may or may not have ever heard of. To start off with this segment, I wanted to actually cover a film that's called Halloween, The Death of Michael Myers. It is a 2006 movie that was made by a YouTuber called Stranger at Home. I first saw this movie in 2008 and I loved it. It really was a great movie back then from what I remembered. And I just finished watching it just now after not seeing it for almost 12 years. I am still amazed that this movie was made on a $300 budget. The movie is by no means some type of HD professional fancy photographed Hollywood thing like you get now where you look up Halloween fan film and you'll see something that looks just as good as Hollywood. That's not what this is. This is something where people took a video recorder and made a movie with their friends. The thing is though, you really can tell how much these people loved Halloween. Every single one of them that was in this movie. I love Halloween and I have seen all the movies a million times. This movie while very low budget and you can really tell that they didn't have much money to scrape this thing together stands right up there with the best of them in my opinion and this isn't even based on adjustment for budget and acting or anything like that no if this was judged against all of them including budget and 
acting and all of that, it will be right up there with the first two. I love the guy that played Dr. Loomis in this movie. His costume was cheap and that skullcap was terrible, but he was amazing. He really was never going to surpass Donald Pleasance, of course. But if there was an actor that could, it was that guy. It was really close. He really captured that Dr. Loomis sort of character. So let's back up a little bit so I can tell you what the story is about. In this movie, it takes place right after Halloween 6, where Tommy Doyle, the little boy from the first movie that Laurie says, you know, run up the road to the McKenzie's and call the police near the end of Halloween 1, basically comes back to try and stop Michael Myers from killing Jamie Lloyd's baby. And that's pretty much the entire movie, is them trying to keep the baby from Michael. I will put this movie up against 2018's Halloween, and even pretty much all of the others. And I'm going to tell you why I think that it's much better than 2018 was. While people praise Halloween 2018 as being one of the best horror movies ever and it got such great box office acclaim and all of that, to me they fundamentally forgot what made Michael Myers scary. Michael Myers is slow, he sneaks in your house, he stalks you, he's just right outside your window and you don't see him. He just had these sort of movements and the way the camera would follow him and just all these little things John Carpenter would do that made him scary. This was mostly lost after the second movie, but it was tolerable and, you know, 456H2O and even Resurrection a little bit, I guess. I honestly do not think that any of the movies after Resurrection were even watchable for the most part. That's just my opinion. I hated the Rob Zombie movies with the passion, and I just don't like that sort of flair he gave it to him. I'm not even a House of a Thousand Corpses guy. I'm not a Devil's Reject guy, even though I thought that was a decent movie. I am not a Rob Zombie guy at all. So maybe that taints my judgment of what I feel like this movie could be so high on that ranking because I'm not a fan of anything after Resurrection, and even Resurrection had its moments because it really was kind of that stupid early 2000s kind of thing, which didn't bother me that much. I mean, the Busta Rhymes thing was goofy, but, I mean, Freddy went goofy about three or four movies in, and I didn't mind Freddy's dead, so. I don't mind having a little bit of goofiness in my movies. I mean, look at, you know, Chucky. He got a little goofy by the third or fourth movie. Like, Bride of Chucky might as well have been a dark comedy, and I still love that movie. But the thing with this movie is it really has all the elements of a great Halloween movie, and it's shot beautifully for what camera they had, which was pretty fuzzy and messed up, but it really felt like a John Carpenter love letter to me, is what it felt like. It really felt like they wanted to capture the John Carpenter sort of thing with what budget they did have. I highly recommend this movie. I actually downloaded the entire thing and spliced it together into one long movie instead of the 10 parts it was originally released as and put it on rumble if you want to watch it as one piece because i feel like since youtube had the limitation of only 10 minute videos when it came out that it made the movie feel a bit more disconnected when it wasn't all one piece so i fixed that and i upscaled it to 1080 it's still fuzzy 
it's still rough looking, but honestly, I love it. I, I think it's incredible. The only thing I would even complain about it at all is the ending is kind of weak. But it has every element that the original two movies did. And honestly, I think if it had a slightly higher budget that it would stand up right there next to Halloween 1 and 2. You really should check this movie out. Thank you for watching or listening wherever you are. Please follow or subscribe or love or whatever the thing is that you do on the site that you're watching me or listening to me from. Go to terrortracks.com slash shop to help support the channel. And follow me on minds.com slash jackpiercebooks where you will get updates about the podcast. And also join the Discord that I've created for this show at terrortracks.com slash follow. And it will give you links to all my social media and the Discord server. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Sweet dreams. dreams. <laughs>